0: Uh, hello, Jenny.
1: Hello,
0: Paul. Uh, we're on... Uh, this is number four. Podcast number 4 Woohoo. And uh, we are uh, going to tackle today a very important topic, especially to uh, middle-class people everywhere.
1: Fighting the Russians? A lot N- Rocky Four. NPR. <laughs> oh, oh, similar.
0: Similar. Because uh, when we listen to NPR, we, um, we defeat communism. I know that the... <laughs> There are many Fox News viewers who who believe exactly the opposite is true but in fact um in many ways uh, NPR is very subversively uh, supporting our capitalist economy
1: planet money
0: <clears throat> Yeah well planet money yeah I mean that in and, and, and of course uh uh marketplace which is PRI but you know
1: <laughs> I can't distinguish the two having grown up uh here in Chicago I feel like half the PRI shows are either here Boston or
0: yeah, well, PRI was sort of the, uh, sort of like the hip alternative NPR, right? That's why like uh, This American Life is on PRI because NPR rejected it. But it
1: wasn't him. always, right? Wasn't it NPR for
0: a while? No, no. Oh. Always it was. Uh, it was started at Easy in Chicago, right. and then uh, got picked up by PRI. NPR rejected Ira Glass. But uh before we get into it, I just had to say that uh this is the second podcast in which I've actually supplied Jenny with headphones.
1: <laughs> no, I can actually hear myself.
0: So uh we are uh It will re-
1: it will significantly reduce my giggling and uses of like, possibly, <laughs> hopefully.
0: All the accoutrements are here, but I was telling her about the origin of these headphones. These are some fancy headphones. They're not really good for I'm broadcasting. Them,
1: though you can't see that.
0: Uh because they have open back as they're called, right? So there's not uh, the hard plastic. You could kind of hear things going on. Um, and in broadcasting, you really want the clothes back, like the model I'm wearing. But I don't have two pairs of these, so. I'm okay. We make do. Uh, but those are Grado's. The, the Grado company is based in uh, New York, uh, upstate a little bit, maybe K- Poughkeepsie area, somewhere like that. They still manufacture everything there. They make headphones and uh, turntable cartridges.
1: That seems very. Uh In the now of them, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it wasn't in the now when in the nineteen nineties and nineteen eighties, but it is now. Yes, in the now, so to speak.
1: Speaking of, I was in a, I was in a record store. Well, they weren't, they are not mostly a record store. They have some records, but they mostly sell. They are called the Record Exchange, which is kind of a misnomer. Oh, over there in uh, Lakeview, yeah. Um, and they sell videos, and they sell CDs. And then they sell a very small amount. Oh, they sell some video games, but they sell a small amount of of records. And an older man came in and said, where is your 45 section? And they were like, we don't really have a 45 section. Mm,
0: Not a record Uh, store.
1: I mean, they had like eight 45s, which I was looking at. And I I was actually looking at them at the moment this man came in. And I was like, I believe this is the 45 section. But uh, they actually recommended a different record store, which I was pretty surprised at and thought was like awesome and not very Yeah, well high maybe they don't of them. think
0: that they compete, you know.
1: Yeah, but to openly admit that it, as a record store employee, is pretty impressive to me.
0: Occasionally such things happen. Record store employees aren't what they like they used to be.
1: It's true. And but I mean, who's like, you know what, I need some 45s?
0: The 2000s were hard on record stores, and they're, they're bouncing back, but you know, there's a real shake out there.
1: But the idea that this man is like, I only need 45s, was a really interesting idea to me. That he's like walking up and down Belmont.
0: There are people uh, who are way into them for any number of reasons. Uh, In part because they only want the single. They don't want to be burdened with the album. In part because sometimes the B-sides, of course, were unique. Um, And sometimes it's just that collector's mania, right? Where you need to have every release and pressing. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes people are trying to stock old jukeboxes.
1: This man, I mean, he appeared to be using them for his own personal use, but uh, 80% of the 45s that this place had were somehow Jack White related. So I don't think that he uh, was finding what he was looking for.
0: So apropos both 45s and public radio, Uh uh, in college, I briefly was a volunteer at uh, the first station in the former New Jersey state uh, public radio broadcasting system, which was dismantled last year by uh, Governor Christie. Um, he sold it off in two parts. One half he sold to New York Public Radio. The other half he sold to WHYY in Philadelphia, home of Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Fresh Air. But I was working at the uh, at the uh, flagship station, Trenton, which at the time was the only station, and it was uh, housed in the uh, same uh, building as New Jersey Public Television, uh, where they produced the nightly uh, New Jersey nightly news not from straight from the state capitol, of course. And I engineered the uh the nightly news simulcast. So I had to sit there in the studio where we had a broadcast board from nineteen sixty two with big knobs, no sliders, none of that fancy slider crap. Big, big knobs, mono. We had a, it was a hundred watt station that they'd had a so the they license would for forever.
1: On TV and, and
0: Radio. And- so we just took the audio and then every time they went to like a commercial, but it's public televisions so they were like PSAs or um or uh, they were like promos for other programs. I had carts to play. You know, carts look like eight tracks only in their loops, still being used at that time, even in real stations. And uh, it was it was fine. It was just something to do, you know. And uh, but the guy ahead of me was the drive time DJ, and he was just this dude with long hair, and uh, he j- and, and there were no guy. They had no programming. Like they were, they were, they knew they were going to do something with the station. No one knew what to do with it because they'd had the license, and I don't even know what they'd done with it. So they're trying to turn it into a real station. So the guy just bought lots of forty fives at this uh, record store. I wish I can remember the name of that was in Trenton, beautiful Trenton, New Jersey, and uh, it was one of these like hole in the wall places that that was you know for crate diggers before there was anything called crate digging. Um, and but he liked to go there because all the forty fives were twenty five cents. And he just went and picked up forty fives by the armful and brought them into play, and nothing but forty fives.
1: Yeah, no, I, mean, I could see like a hip guy going in to buy forty fives, but the idea of like a sort of elderly man—this dude around, wasn't hip.
0: I mean, yeah. this dude was just just one of those dudes.
1: Yeah, but he was like an uh, a, an audio geek, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah right. So that's reasonable to me. This guy yeah. was not that. Okay. was just some random. So I, I that was like a weird, and also. Everyone in the store was kind of like, really? This is interesting. This guy is like going through the, the like, ravenettes, 45s. <laughs> right,
0: the new ones. not Yeah, the...
1: right, yeah. No, I don't know. And I don't know if he wanted old ones or new ones. It was very strange. Well, if
0: you're Dark. calling them 45s. that's true. You're probably looking for old ones because right. otherwise you'd call them 7 inches.
1: Yeah, does anyone? If... Uh, yeah, it's true. I guess that's true.
0: Because uh, 7 inches is according to the format, and some of them run at, at 33 so you can get more music on it, while others run at forty five. Often confusing. Uh, I remember getting in college these Melvin seven inches, and you never knew. They never marked. You never knew if it was forty five or thirty three, and you'd put it on, and you still weren't sure.
1: Melvin's on tour this year because it's nineteen ninety three. I know. Uh,
0: well, the Melvins haven't quit tour. That's
1: true, but they have. I, I feel a significant tour. It seems like.
0: I am all for the it's 1993 again. It's that crazy. was a great fucking year for me. It was me. a great year. I love 1993. Well, it was actually
1: a bad year for me, but it's a great year for music.
0: It was a great year for me. I graduated college. I you know what the fuck I was doing. Uh, I went to see Lollapalooza in Philadelphia, uh, where I got to see Tool for the first time, and uh, Fishbone, which wasn't too early for them, uh, and 242, and Primus, and Alice in Chains. That was a good year.
1: I'm 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 agreeing you with you. It's a good year.
0: I saw I saw Biohazard and sick of it all that year.
1: It's a good year for Biohazard. <laughs> it was
0: a good year for Biohazard. Yeah, let me tell you, I had
1: that tape with the orange, the clear, uh, the the neon orange. Oh yeah, that was good.
0: Yeah, State of the World Dress was, address. Cool. was it that one, or uh, yeah, know.
1: and they had all the that was I mean that was pretty cool at the time because oh, they didn't yeah. use clear. I used neon I, orange.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No. 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 Cool. No. That was a good year. So we want to bring 1993 back. That's fine. It's a little frightening, actually. <laughs> <clears throat> but I'll, I'll accept it. I'll accept all that that's associated with it. But I was just going to tell you about I left the station because there was a a power battle between two opposing forces in New New, New Jersey public uh, television who wanted to take it over. One side was a dude who did the alternative rock show. I remember what he did but he he wanted to go kind of in like that very early like kind of uh, alternative rock kind of so direction. So this public
1: radio station was only music?
0: It was they didn't know what the hell they wanted to be.
1: Okay, cuz I've never heard of a r- It was a radio little dinky
0: hundred watt station and they couldn't figure out what they wanted it to be. Um mm-hmm. and I don't I'm, I'm not actually sure how it started getting used but it may have just gotten licensed pretty recently at that point. And so there's a battle over it and they were kind of running it basically everyone who was running it was running it like as a hobby, kind of like just an extra thing on top of what they normally do. And then everyone who was DJing or doing something was volunteering. And I was doing it because there's sort of the promise I could get my own show down the line. And uh, then it was a big battle. And the guy who did the alternative show, the alternative rock show, was, was pitted against some other dude who was wanted to make it more like smooth jazz or something like that. <laughs> ultimately and i and, and they were both and it was weird i they, they both like called me at, home, at my dorm room or like oh, i'd like to meet with you and they're like courting me like okay well you know if you stick around we won't have to you know it was really bizarre because i'm like 21 years old you're like right. why should anyone give a crap about me and i was like this is just weird um i have like a college station with like 10 times the power i'll just kind of hang out there that's enough that's fine thanks a lot and then it became like a regular public radio station with NPR programming, and it became like a network of these little hundred watt stations all over New Jersey. Did you
1: did you grow up with public radio in general?
0: My dad was a listener.
1: I didn't know public radio existed until I was like seventeen.
0: Oh, yeah, my dad was a listener, so we'd always listen in the car, and it was always the battle, right? Because in the afternoon, he'd be listening to All Things Considered, and you're like, no, I want to listen to, you know, rock radio or whatever, and and you'd fight over it.
1: Yeah, my mom listened to German polka in the car. So which you
0: can do in Chicago. Which you can
1: do in Chicago, and is very annoying if you're 13.
0: Hmm.
1: Um. But yeah, so I when I went to high school, uh, in the in the liberal suburb, um, I learned that this thing existed, the NPR, and I I mean I remember I remember the first time I listened to NPR because I it was, it was This American Life. Oh, we were wow, I remember okay. driving back from the theater with my dad, and being like. People are talking on the radio and telling a story. This is crazy.
0: And telling me something I might even like to listen to. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, I mean, I guess I think in my friend group and in everyone I know, it's sort of everyone grew up with public radio. And I think it's totally alien to my life until I was like in Hmm. college, basically.
0: But, you know, you're uh, not quite 10 years younger than I. Right. So, I mean, I, do, I think that the public radio has grown in listenership, right? Definitely. And so by the time you were a teenager, it was uh, more popular and, and had more uh, cachet, so to speak, uh, public knowledge than it, than it did when I was a teenager. My dad, of course, was a listener. And when I was uh, in high school and then uh, late high school and in college, in the summers, I often worked uh, at the same community college where my dad worked summer jobs where I worked in that area. So I commute with him in the mornings and the summers. And it was always a fight. Uh, we, we had to fun, we We would have a various negotiations over the radio station each way, that often depending on who was going to drive. I wanted to listen to Howard Stern. Right, you know, I'm, an, I'm a kid from New Jersey. I, I've been listening to Howard Stern since he was on AM radio, since I was 13 years old. So still very much a big listener back then. My dad either wanted to listen to NPR, listen to uh, the morning edition, or he wanted to listen to WQXR. And I don't know if you know QXR from when you were, uh, it was the radio station of the New York Times. Uh. So it was a commercial station, classical music, no, but all the, all the commercials were live reads. There were no uh, pre-taped spots, nothing blaring, always read by the announcer. And uh, the morning program was a mix of news and music. So there was like news in the New York Times and classical music. My dad would want to listen to that. And I mean, like, no, I want to listen to Howard Stern. And in the afternoons, it was the you know, I'll listen to all things considered, or my dad, or I want to listen to Howard Stern. But I first was exposed in any in any uh, in sort of uh, concentrated form to the public radio at that point. And I, I was fine. I wasn't. I, I'll, I'll admit I wasn't really turned on to it at that point. It was. I didn't think it was so interesting. But at that point, all th- public radio to me meant. Uh, All things considered, Morning Edition, and uh, a bunch of local call-in shows out of out of WNYC.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't realize it had news elements (laughs) until. (laughs) See, to me, it was just news. (laughs) Who gives a Um, shit? Um, yeah, it had like Hearts of Space, that sort of stuff, and then like the World Music Hour or whatever. And then there was like, yeah, shows like This American Life.
0: Yeah, and that wasn't my experience at all. I didn't hear most of that stuff.
1: And I would say and not even until I went to grad school did I know people. Like, the idea that adults just leave NPR on in their kitchen while they make food is just such a like incredibly alien white people phenomenon that I didn't <laughs> understand as a child. That um, Yeah, or or the idea that people will even say, like, oh, I just yeah, I put on the NPR. I just listen to it on and off all day. Like, that's very weird to me.
0: Yeah, I became an NPR listener in my 20s. And certainly during graduate school, uh, in part because that's when I got involved in community radio and became more aware of these other sort of forms of information radio. Uh, And so NPR then is on that same diagram. Of course, then I started knowing, you know... uh, lived at the time in Urbana Champaign, Illinois, home to the University of Illinois, but I actually knew people working at the radio station. And they as have well. a farm
1: report, which is actually the best the
0: farm report. Thing yeah. that is on you missed NPR. that up here.
1: I do love I did love the farm report. And
0: they used to have great meteorology.
1: I, okay. Oh, Ed
0: Keyser, come on, you get these great detailed <laughs> forecasts. Uh, I'm
1: sure, I'm sure. I would I just I liked the farm report. But
0: then they fired all those guys, so yeah. they don't have the detailed uh, forecasts forecast anymore in uh, in Champaign Urbana. But, yeah, it was in the 20s I as when I started listening to it. Um, again, I was never – I wasn't much exposed in, to the music side because uh, I think w- how you're exposed to public radio really depends on where you live. Right. Because in some
1: – It's so local. it's, it's it local. used to be. Now I don't think it is as much, but
0: – Yeah. Well, th- there's one divide that still kind of lives, and that is the AM-FM divide. So um, there are some stations that are FM only, and they'll tend to have more music programming, right? Yeah, because it's FM. Then their stations are AM only, and they tend not to have any of the music stuff because music doesn't sound so good on, on on AM. And then you have some like you have in Champaign-Urbana and some other cities where there's an AM and an FM, right? And the FM will often have like classical music and jazz plus the music programming from NBR plus some of the news, and then the AM will be all news talk. And so like if you're listening to WILL-FM, or AM, I'm sorry, in, in uh, Champaign-Urbana, the public station there, uh, you never hear into music programming. You wouldn't even know there was music programming in NPR unless you turn over to the FM side, which is sort of milquetoast classical most well, of the time. Well, and, and it if wouldn't you... occur
1: to me that there wouldn't just be a classical station in your town for right. money.
0: Well, well, commercial classical is nearly dead.
1: Right, but I mean, I grew up with a commercial classical WFMT station. WFMT yeah, here, yeah, so... chi- here in
0: Chicago, which is actually, you know, owned by uh, mm-hmm. WTTW. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's its own, but it, it's a, it's a commercial license, and they operate like a commercial station. Inside Radio uh, Baseball, there
1: hmm. I got tons of it. <laughs> so, um, I think though you 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 came here to say a few things about some of the programming on on NPR.
0: Well, you know, there was just an announcement this uh, this past week or so, and when, well, it may be a week, under week old by the time this goes to uh, internets. That the uh, car guys are, are, are going to quit clack. click and clack are going to quit car talk. But, of course, they're going to keep the show on the air. And
1: uh, so are they having other people do it or they're just
0: no, they're recording? just going to okay. they're just going to regenerate. And and again, those of us who are more critical of car talk say, yeah, it's been the same. You know, there hasn't been a new show in 20 years. And And for people who listen to car talk, you may or may not know that the show is not they don't sit down for an hour and cut the show. Uh, all the calls, of course, they call you. I mean, you call them and, and say, I would like to talk about this problem. And then the producers sort through all those calls and call you. at have some pretty arranged time and they do the call and they stitch it all together, which means that some calls are, are are could be weeks and weeks old. They aren't just from this past week. They could be weeks or months old in the can. A lot of the laughter is canned.
1: <laughs> I think – I don't think that people who love Click and Clack care about the canned nature. Yeah, I,
0: I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, either you like the show or you don't, right? I guess is a sort of level. And uh, um, but I've I read this a lot of praise now on the interwebs in the last few days uh, since the announcement was made, right? And so that praise is sort of they were the uh, first show to sort of make NPR loosen up. That sort of said that it was the first show that was like not quite so serious, not quite so newsy. And it was a show that you could have entertainment and people laughing and that, you know, the success of the click and clack is evidence of, you know, if you're nice and people, you make people like you, then you'll have this long running franchise and, and dah, da dah. And then sure. That's at some level. Sure. I, I think that's probably all true, but car talk is also one of the most things most emblematic of the sort of the homogenization of NPR and the delocalization of public radio. Uh, Because Car Talk was not the only car public radio show. Like, actually, there were stations all over the country that had their own call-in type car radio shows. Because, you know, sort of this idea of a local call-in show for a number of, of different topics... Uh, was a fairly common phenomenon uh, going well into the 90s. It wasn't uncommon for a lot of, especially smaller communities, to have one or two AM stations, and one was sort of a roughly news talk, but news talk meant headlines from AP Wire and, you know, the Farm Report, or may also mean like, you know, the uh, on-air uh, trade wire, you know, where people go, I got I got a pile of hay. If someone wants to buy a pile of hay, you know, and do the, the kind of trading post. And a lot of public radio stations sort of would take it up as, you know, they have local authors and they call and whatever. A lot of stations had a had call in car repair shows. And
1: uh, truck trucking stations do you still do? Yeah, a trucking
0: stations. It's a different sort of or uh, even
1: like call in traffic programs where they'll be like, oh, there's a hold up in this part right. of the town.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of hits a different audience for a different reason, but, but yeah, it exists. And so a lot of public radio stations, and I'm actually uh, right now going through and trying to do my research on this because I read the stories when they happened more about a decade ago, and I'd like to go turn that up and, and be able to you know, put some meat on the bones of this story. But there were places like Rochester, New York, and, and uh, someplace in Oregon, and other places where there were local public radio stations that had a Saturday morning call-in show about car repair. You know, again, because it's, I mean, sort of the idea isn't crazy, right? And people have questions about things. They don't always, aren't able to go to a mechanic or sometimes don't always trust the advice they got from their mechanic. And so, you know, there's this, someone you could call. Local newspapers often had similar sorts of columns where you write in about problems you're having at your house or whatever. And public radio stations had this. And this is a pretty big staple of local public radio, a call and show about car repair or house maintenance and things like that. And it was, you know, somewhere in sort of like the late 90s, you saw story after story across the country of stations canceling their local car call-in shows to put on car talk. One by one, Uh, you know, and usually to some measure of local community outcry, but also to some measure of of people not caring because in any larger community, even someplace like Rochester, New York, there's plenty of people moving in. Uh, from other places were like well how come your station doesn't carry car talk and you're not going to have car talk and your local call-in show about cars and of course uh, you know what do you, what choice are you going to make when you're a local program director and if you're a program director at a local at a at a public radio station you go to the annual program directors conference where all they do is hammer into you how uh, underwriters and audiences love car talk and that you're going to increase your lo- your revenue it's going to sound like commercial radio when you put car talk on the air instead of local programming and they'll never quite phrase it as explicitly instead of local programming instead they'll show you these graphs that say well when you you know here's the uh, loyalty and listener and giving rates and whatever for uh, unspecified local programming and here it is for car talk and here it is for all things considered and here it is for whatever whatever these brands that people know no- nationally but Car Talk was really the the show that that kind of pushed NPR in a direction not only when when it previously was mostly concerned with news and a little and some cultural programming into really lifestyle programming into the idea that we're gonna get, we're you know no longer selling you a couple programs but cooking we're ba-
1: shows travel shows
0: yeah basically selling you a whole slate of programming of
1: syndicated programming. yeah
0: and and certainly these shows have existed on NPR for quite some time, and they come and go. But it was Car Talk, because it had generated a brand and became sort of popular in in the cities where it it aired, became the kind of thing that when people would move to a new market somewhere like Chicago, go, well, I want to hear Car Talk. Or as I would talk to the folks at WLL, um, they didn't air Car Talk for a long, long time and it was and they do these like uh talk to the station manager uh things every so often on the radio and they would always say yes we get a lot of requests for car talk but car talk is one of the most expensive programs for us to air and what you know just like uh network television or or syndicated television the local station has to pay NPR for the rights to uh carry any given program um and that's Part of the decision any station makes to carry it, but and you know, so car talk, it's why it's a very for me a mixed bag. It's like sure, maybe there's some positives in in sort of bringing this new sort of type of programming to NPR and softening its image, but it did sell by decimating a lot of local. Well,
1: I know people locally here in Chicago do have the same issue, sort of with the uh This American Life, Tori Melitia takeover. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, basically, the popularity of This American Life allowed a certain group of people. As far as I'm told, to take over uh, the local NPR station because well, yeah. they had so much like pull,
0: really pulling money. But also, I mean, the thing is, also those people are pissed off about the fact that the classical music was exactly, canceled yeah. and the jazz music was canceled, and and that's sort of the you know in any of these fights in any of these stations, and having been involved in communities, radio, where these fights can become really minuscule and personalized, but they happen at public radio as well. You know, a lot of it is any change is bad. Of course. And that's hard to, you know, when I'm making this argument, a car talk, you know, you say, well, you know, they brought in a program that was more popular, get rid of a program that was less popular. And, you know, partly you can just have that sort of knee jerk reaction, well, any change is bad, right? Not not necessarily that it, because it was towards the uh, syndicated programming. But of course, the programming that WBEZ canceled, uh, the public radio station here in Chicago, was programming that appealed to an aging and dying demographic.
1: Well, I guess that's one of the questions I have, is I have no understanding of why anyone likes car talk <laughs> at all. I just have no understanding. I've tried so many times to listen to car talk.
0: You know, I mean, I, mean, I
1: don't drive a car. So that's par- partially like an issue, but they're from Boston. I guess I feel like it's popular in cities where people don't drive cars. <laughs> so I don't really understand it.
0: Well, it's not about the city, of course. It's a huge metroplex. And once you're outside the sure.
1: city. But I mean, <laughs> I, like, it's not popular in like, I mean, I think the, the W.I.L.L. like rural example is a great point. That's first of all, I don't understand why you would call someone and explain what's wrong with your car. Like if there was a radio show about calling someone and explaining what your computer was doing, no one would listen to that. That would be terrible. Well, so
0: is, is having not been a car owner or, yeah. or, or a car driver. Right. Um, there are times when uh, I don't currently own a car, but I've owned a few there are times when you do come across a problem that you can't find anyone no, who can fix.
1: I understand that idea, but that's true of my computer as well. <laughs> but I'm not going to call someone and be well, like... Well, there's
0: Kim Commando. You can call her. Uh, I don't know who that is. I think... I don't know if she's still on. Uh, she's syndicated. Uh, I think she's on... People w-
1: listen to that?
0: WLS in Chicago. That's and terrible. And people call her Friday nights. And I think it's
1: Friday, Friday nights. nights? Yeah.
0: Well... Who- go oh, who's the audience all right okay apparently um and say yeah mom i'm having this problem with my pc blah 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 and she diagnoses the problem on air
1: but that makes no sense like i wouldn't i it just doesn't make any sense to me it's like such a tactile problem both both scenarios are such a tactile problem well
0: but most of the time with car talk they're not giving you advice that for you to go fix it so much they're, most of the advice is your mechanic is right or wrong That's a big part of it, Uh, or it's likely your mechanic is right or wrong, or maybe you really should go to a mechanic and you shouldn't have done that. Or if you go to the mechanic, here's what you should tell them so that they will know better what to do. So, I mean, part of it is truly practical, but the car talk thing is primarily that of homespun predictability. It is, I know what to expect from this show, and they get off the occasional one-liner that's funny but the whole thing just makes me feel good. It's that kind of radio. It's the same reason why you know people listen to the, uh, Garrison Keylor.
1: Well, yeah, and I hate that show too. And so do I. And I, I feel I, like, but I feel like both shows are not just homespun. That homespun thing. I think it's also I have a really non-tactile, white-collar job. Look at me listening to the old-timey. I do. I agree. Dudes.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think know how to fix that,
1: things.
0: Well, I think that they they have probably they have the cross appeal. So probably there's the appeal to the guys who really do work on their cars on the do weekend. Do people
1: who really work on their cars listen to NPR? Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think it would be I, I I don't think we can make the assumption that there aren't plenty of white collar NPR oh, listeners yeah, yeah. who don't work on their car. But
1: I don't think like mechanics listen to car talk.
0: I don't know. I i no, I won't I won't put a horse in yeah, that. Yeah, I have game. no idea. But, but 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 some guy who who, who owns, you know, four or five cars that he works on on the weekend to put together and restore, he might listen. Yes.
1: I've never walked into a Jiffy Lube and heard car talk on. I'll put it that way.
0: Like <laughs> the guys well, at Jiffy Lube don't work on cars. Sure. The guys who work at Jiffy Lube work at Jiffy okay, Lube. Okay, right,
1: but I've never walked into any car related <laughs> I have been to a lot of mechanics, I guess in my lifetime for a person who doesn't own a car. Um, but I've never been like, that's a lovely, uh, calendar of, of big titty women. I'm so glad you're listening to NPR right now. That's never happened. To yeah. me. Well,
0: but I think, right. I think it appeals to people in part just because of their chemistry. And then you, the chemistry may not appeal to you, but right, sure. th- the chemistry that they have—I mean, part of it—it's—is the chemistry they have and the way way they talk about something. And yes, I do think it's part of this. It sort of appeals to this nostalgic notion of what like a couple guys, you know, jaw jawing away in their in their garage would be like in Boston, and yet it's been. Been nicely gentrified for the uh, public radio. Right, listener. like they
1: went to MIT. They're not like you know guys. <laughs> right,
0: right, exactly. That's the right, and, and and you know that that veil has has been stripped away long ago, and right. people have shown that they don't really give a shit. Uh, that I mean, they don't they don't try to convince you that they are greasy uh, guys uh, sure. from Southie. <laughs> Oh, hi. You're just about at the halfway point of Episode 4 of Jenny and Paul Sell Sellout. Um, Paul here to remind you that we have a website, too, at selloutpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there, of course, or in iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Please rate our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that others might find out how good it feels to sell out. Now we jump back into our version of Car Talk. Its popularity is partially due to the fact that it is so now nationwide. It's the kind of thing that whether you're in Detroit or Boston or L.A., you can tune in and hear it and it's familiar and it has that. Because so, I think that's what people do partially tune into radio for in general, whether it's public radio or whether it's Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity.
1: Or Man cow.
0: Or, or, or when now. it was, or Howard Stern, or something like that. So I do think that that's at least part of it, and and sort of the predictability, and you know what's coming, and it's not something that I love so much in radio, the predictability factor, because uh, even cause they have shtick, right? In every hour, you know, they're going to do, you know, answer a few calls, and they'll make some jokes, and they'll do their puzzler, which is, uh, you know, they put out a, a brain teaser every week, and people try and answer it, and they'll, you know, they have, and they'll have do corny jokes. I think
1: you mean a puzzler.
0: A puzzler, yes.
1: Uh, well, I mean, like, do you think if they didn't have the accent, they would have had that job?
0: No, I mean, I mean you gotta remember, it started out as a local show in Boston.
1: Sure, sure, but I mean, well, I, yeah, I, but I think, like, part of that show. The, reason the, like the,
0: that the job, national appeal comes from that, yes. I don't think that its initial appeal came from that. Um, it may, the initial appeal may have come from the fact that. That people in Boston got to hear people with actual Boston accents on the radio, because it's certainly a phenomenon in broadcasting in general that regional accents are disfavored, um, except unless you are a weather caster or a uh, sports caster.
1: There is nothing I want to hear less on radio than a Chicago accent, <laughs> personally. <laughs>
0: But, but listen to the sportscaster and No, I mean hear I'm it. sure
1: that's true. I just have no understanding of that either. But I you mean,
0: listen to any of the anchors on Chicago Public Radio and you won't hear it. Of course, they're probably not from Chicago yeah. at this point in time. But that's a different story. Right. <laughs> right. About urban migration. Uh, but yeah, I think that's what people what appeals to people about it, and I do think there's a lot of people who like basically knowing what they're going to hear every every week. And part of it is is the same phenomenon you mentioned is that it's the turn it on and leave it kind of thing. So I th- it's a mistake to think that people are listening to radio, it's even talk radio, in a way in which they're sitting there intently processing and taking in all the information and really thinking about it. They're engaged in other activities, whether it's driving, cooking reading at their work jobs or whatever and so they're only sporadically in and out and car talk is is a program that i think allows you to do that to pop in for three minutes and four minutes or whatever hear a call listen to a joke and and pop back out and do something else and come back in and you haven't missed much (laughs) there's not gonna be much in the interim you're not gonna be able to have a hard time catching up which is i think in fact one of the reasons why this american life had difficulty initially because it was the kind of radio that not only rewarded sort of intent listening kind of requires intent listening. If you're going to get anything out of it.
1: Right, unlike like a wait, wait, don't tell me, which I think you could come in at any point or I mean, I don't know. I think Garrison or Keeler... even
0: all things considered where the stories sure. let, are run from between, you know, three minutes to 17 minutes.
1: But yeah, I mean their lifestyle stuff. I feel like G- Garrison Keeler, yeah, you could listen to the whole episode, but I don't think you have to.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, any smart radio programmer has to recognize that. And it's not the matter that you should never create a This American Life or a program which which um, has long-form listening so much as that you can't program a whole station with long-form listening or you probably aren't going to maintain a listenership.
1: So do you think that people like Car Talk for the same reason they like Garrison Keillor?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it may not be the same audiences, but I definitely think it's for the same reasons.
1: Why do you think Garrison Keillor doesn't have a Minnesota accent?
0: Oh, because he probably studiously uh, tried to get rid of it. No, right,
1: right. But why don't you think that he has one for the show? I mean, it would make more sense if he had a Minnesota accent.
0: Well, you know, because I'm not sure that, that at the time that it became popular, he thought that that would have been a reason to get on. Car talk is not contrived from that standpoint. All right. I uh, I I I I would argue that as much as I'm not a like fan, They're not of the program, faking the X. They're not. F- no, I know that. So what I mean is it's not contrived in that someone thought, "Oh, like sat down in a boardroom somewhere and 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 said, "Okay, so we'll get a couple of guys, uh they should it could be from like Fargo. Nah, they could be from Detroit. Nah, Boston. We get a couple It
1: would wa- make way more sense if they were. But
0: instead from it was it was a bit more of like I think it was Laura's Susan, Susan Stamberg heard it and recommended it to the higher ups at NPR. Um, it was a show at a local station that got run up through the ranks and slowly grew in, in, uh, in popularity over the course of 25 years. Um, so, to say, why doesn't Garrison Keillor have a Minnesota accent? Because he never thought it was important to the success of the but show. I mean,
1: I don't think that it's contrived that or the show premise is contrived. Uh, I just think, though, they totally trade on the whole, like, economic blackface aspect of it.
0: <laughs> well, they do now, of course. <laughs> right. I mean, but I mean, that, that's I think that's, again, you 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 play with what you're dealt. Right. Then, I mean, that that's kind of what they learned makes the show popular. So they play it up and and for all I know, they were playing it up even then Because but then it would have been a different joke right I mean it's in a sort of the uh the joke of the blues brothers the joke of the uh of the chiboga chiboga right uh and you can play that to Chicagoans who right. get one joke out of it and you can play that nationally and they get a different joke right. and i and I don't doubt that perhaps that the uh, click and clack. Weren't playing up their Bostonness to the Boston audience.
1: So, do you think that Minnesotans get a different thing out of uh, Garrison Keillor than you and I get out of Garrison Keillor?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, and I'm being really honest because I never really the Minnesotaness of it, right. Never really registered with me so much as that it had sort of more of a Midwesternness. Well, that's
1: it. the thing that I, I find really irritating about it because, like, the f- I the only the first time I heard of Garrison Keillor, I lived on the West Coast, but I'm from. Chicago, which some people would say is not the Midwest, so, you know, but I would think of as the Midwest, and um, the, I think it gives, like, a horrible stereotype about Midwesterners that, like, is not, both is not true, and is, like, exactly what, as a Midwesterner who lived in a different place, I would have to, like, fight every day, you know, And, and so the idea that people in the Midwest like it is totally bizarre to me.
0: But I think it sets it. But it's also itself. It's a parody of sorts. I mean, it's not.
1: But people in other places don't think it's parody.
0: That's not true. That's not. That's not entirely true. Because I know people who listen to it in New Jersey, and they got it. They got the 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 parodiness of it. That it was sort of a, a take on this sort of American ideal, right? I mean, it's sort of basically the. It, it is sort of aspects of examining the Leave It to Beaver universe, right? Right. No, I mean, which I is think- Midwestern not by place it was never explicit midwestern by assumption
1: sure and i do think that people get that sort of joke but i think the f- if if you say you're from minnesota what's the first thing people are going to assume about you i don't know i miss i mean like i mean
0: i'm serious when i no. I, say I know that. but
1: I'm, i I think you moved to new york city people ask where are you from mm-hmm. you say Minnes rural minnesota i think the first thing almost everyone would say would be like ha 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 like Garrison Keillor. No, would
0: they not? See, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I believe you when you say that. Because I, I just think of the typical New Jersey or New York New Yorker. That's where I grew up is like, Minnesota, where the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> they're mostly like Iowa, Illinois, Idaho. They're right. all really far west from here.
1: Right.
0: Not that they even have much of a conception of what the difference is between the Midwest and like Idaho.
1: Right. But I'm saying uh, someone from the city. So like <laughs> someone who listens to NPR because they're... Right. Um, in an fake urbane america. person yeah they're in fake america so i mean i think that sort of I, I i think they get the joke about america in general but i think they think that people in the midwest really still think that way
0: hmm. okay i I don't know i mean I, I haven't really encountered that so i mean you, you seem to have
1: it, yeah, they don't
0: just really... believe you but uh
1: but people in, in minnesota seem to love garrison keeler in a way that
0: Because it it, it, goes in in the same way it's it's he's presenting Minnesota to the world he's uh, popular I mean certainly uh, achieved a great degree of popularity through the program it's their own kind of thing I mean, the same way that if we had uh, we have cultural exports from Chicago even if it's making fun of Chicago people still kind of want to own it
1: yeah I I guess I can't think of one that's like negative about like that, I take negatively.
0: The Blues Brothers. I
1: don't
0: take that negatively. <laughs> well, though. it's uh, well, and, and I would say in the Minnesotans don't take <laughs> don't take Bury Home Companion negatively.
1: Well, and that, yeah, I don't. I guess I don't understand how you could not take it negatively, and perhaps that's because I don't live there. Yeah, and
0: I, and and that's funny because that's not what would ever occur to me. It, having, I don't. I really don't listen to it. I really right. avoid it. You know, when it comes on, I like, "Oh, crap.
1: I agree." His voice is really annoying. There's
0: so much about the program that's annoying. And again, part of what annoys me about it is that it is formulaic. And I understand much of entertainment is formulaic. And 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 if you like the formula, you like and If you don't, you don't. So I, I'm not going to dismiss it purely because it's formulaic. But it is the formulaicness of it, and it seems to 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 beat a horse to death in a lot of ways. And it's it's winking sort of approach to uh to this old-timiness is i'm not the old-timiness itself never really appealed to me
1: it's like the cracker barrel of of yeah exactly shows. right yeah.
0: exactly in a lot of, ex- except they're friendlier to gays at the uh, pretty home companion
1: <laughs> probably well it's interesting you say that cuz i um somehow i don't actually know how this happened but i am on like some npr survey board or something so if they're trying out a new show, they'll send it to you, and you have to answer a survey. And they just started this new show that's... It's, wait, wait, don't tell me. It's, like, it's the same show, um except it has a musician. So it's... It, I don't even know what it's called. It's called something really stupid, like the Something Something Variety Hour Circus. Mm-hmm. Like, it's something terrible. And Jonathan Colton is on it, who I like. But, um... It's like Jonathan Colton sings a song and you have to guess the answer. And
0: name that tune.
1: It's terrible. It's like such a terrible show. And and I had to be like, this is a terrible show. You know,
0: NPR program development is infamously wrongheaded, like within the public radio circle. But I
1: think they're right. I think people will like it because it's exactly it's like kind of younger. Wait, wait. Don't tell me without famous people.
0: Well, you know, I was at the public radio program directors conference the year they were debuted. Wait, wait. Don't tell me. And uh, I thought it was a horrible idea. Uh, obviously, love that show. obviously, I was wrong. I, I even liked the show. So let me just say that that I have to come full circle and admit being very, very wrong. But I was there, and a lot of us were like scratching our head. We're like, what, what, what is this? And they actually did a live version of it up, like while we were all eating lunch one day, and they had and they had Carl Castle up there, and they had all everybody up there, and they did a live version, and we're like, what's the name of the show? Wait, wait, don't tell me. Like, what? what the fuck kind of name is that? Who's going to remember that? And obviously it was wrong, but it was also, that was a show again. There there are two types, there there seem to be two types of shows that that seem to happen through NPR. One is the ones that are mostly incubated at a local station and then sent off. Then the ones that are sort of incubated by NPR. And they might be incubated at a local station, but they're primarily incubated by the network. And it seems like the network has a really rotten track record. Like they come up with ideas and uh, they spend a, a ton of money on it and with with a rough track record and the local stations and to be better at spending a little less money, although Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was a pretty big launch that was bankrolled pretty well. It was a pretty big risk, comparatively speaking, whereas This American Life was not. This American Life was a dinky local program that they managed to that, that over the course of a decade built into much more of a phenomenon, whereas Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me became popular much more quickly. Um but uh they've a kind of rotten track record and I I the name of the program is spacing me uh, I I can't remember. It was about 3 years ago, NBR tried to create a daily news program and and, and aimed directly at folks like in their 20s and 30s.
1: Oh yeah, I loved that program. I don't know the name of it.
0: Yeah, it failed.
1: It was awesome. And they
0: spent a, a ton of money on it and it just it, it went down. And in a lot of ways I knew someone who was working there in staff, and the staff were not happy. I mean, they really didn't and feel like...
1: they all do the sporkful. It's a podcast about food.
0: Right. Yeah, some of them do, at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of... They weren't happy. They felt like... Because so many of them felt like they were working on it. We were working really hard, but they weren't really being like they were all young and they didn't really feel like anyone was listening to them. Certainly sort of like, you go do this story and aren't young people into this thing and this thing a little less than like, okay, well what, you know, let's get all the new merging talent in PR and see what they can do. Right. It was, it was sort of the, uh, uh, the monkeys approach to, uh, <laughs> to making a, a youth oriented uh, radio show to the extent to which NPR says right now, of course they have less money than they did four or five years ago. Uh we're going to try things more on like, let's try six episodes and see how it flies rather than investing a couple million dollars in a whole new program and all the infrastructure. Let's spend a couple hundred thousand and see where this thing goes, which is probably the better approach in general. But uh, I'm curious about this uh musical. What yeah. I mean, it me? came
1: on. It, I think it's on the radio now. Um So it, is
0: it on here in Chicago?
1: I think it is. I mean, I've heard other people listen to it. So uh, okay. I, yeah, but I haven't, I haven't listened to it, but um Yeah, they do ask you. It's weird because I'm still on it, but I only listen to NPR in podcast form. So I think it's really interesting because they ask me all these questions about listening to NPR on the radio. Or do you listen to this every day? Or how often do you listen to Morning Edition? And all of the questions I'm like, I never listen to that. And you're every
0: program director and general manager's (laughs) nightmare. And that was a huge, it still is, but it was an enormous struggle within the network. Five years ago, you know, mid mid two thousands, uh, when they first when NPR was really developing its online strategy, which in my opinion is one of the things that has the network wasn't gonna fail, so it didn't need saving, but what has given public radio a much stronger life than it would have otherwise is the online approach, podcasting and all of that, in that it was embraced at least in Washington, at, at the network level, was embraced strongly, but the program directors and the general managers were fighting it tooth and nail because well, they saw it as siphoning away listeners.
1: Yeah, and I remember like ten years ago, if you uh, if you donated during the pledge drive, you actually got a schedule of what was on, because they they wouldn't give you a schedule for free of what was on NPR at least here locally. Hmm. And I was like, what? That's that's like, why would you why would you ha- like hamper <laughs> yeah, people sense. who want? Because, I mean, I think that was the idea mm-hmm. is like turn it on, listen to it all day. Um So I, I think that I I think they're also it is that difference between the idea of listening to it all day versus very chosen yeah. programs. And I think I mean, this is what TV had to go through, too, with things mm-hmm. like TiVo and stuff. But the the idea and this is probably why I don't like click and clack and why I don't like Harrison Keeler is like when I'm ch- making a choice to listen to something, I'm making a very particular choice to listen to all that whole hour or that 30 minutes. And so, uh, I don't want to listen to like click and clack. Cause it's like, Oh, this is the same question. 15 times.
0: <laughs> um, right. And those are very different ways of listening. And right. I do both. Right. right. Uh, I listen to the radio and I listen to our local NPR affiliate. I will turn off click and clack. I turn off Garrison Keeler. I turn off a lot of things that, some, and depending on other shows, I'll listen to them if they've got a decent guest and I won't listen to them otherwise. And then there are things that I'll listen to podcasting, which, of course, is much more like I want to listen to this hour and I'm not going to put up with much bullshit. And If it doesn't sound good, I'm going to turn it off and move to a different thing.
1: Sure. And I think the way I mean, their infrastructure on their website used to be really bad, too, because mm-hmm. even when you tried to download podcasts, for a while, you could only download individual stories, mm-hmm. so it would be like a minute long story. And, and that was a
0: fight with the individual stations, right? They so were fighting like, a you tooth have to and download
1: nail. like a hundred of them for right. for one day. Well,
0: they were really scared. They they did not. I mean, the local stations, especially because you have to put yourself in their shoes. I'm not saying they were right. Right, is that they're paying you know the larger part of their budget for the year to get all things considered in morning edition, and if you can just download it. Without tuning in, they feel like, well, then why are we subsidizing this? And, and you know, and it's not an it's, no, it's not reasonable. an illegitimate question. Um, it has it. it it's not the question isn't as simple as that.
1: But I mean, I think that's a news issue in general. The idea that like people do not know or care where it comes from. And so like if PRI produces one aspect, one episode um, from, you know, one to two and then from two to three, it's a local show. And from three to four, it's a NPR national mm-hmm. show. I don't think ninety percent of people have no idea that those are different, nor do they care.
0: No, they don't. I mean, they they will know if it's local. I mean that that's something I think people do know, and and they 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 do compute and they do. I mean,
1: if it's a news show and it's local, like I don't think they know that.
0: Sure, they do. I mean, uh, so like, and I will talk again about Chicago Public Radio because it's what I listen to most frequently. They have a morning uh, news magazine called Eight Forty Eight. There's no way you can miss that. That's a Chicago. That it's Chicago based. It's mostly Chicago centric, you know.
1: So I guess I mean I again I don't listen to the news very much, but when I lived in Oregon, Oregon Public Radio had uh you know, they would say they would have like maybe an hour of morning edition and then an hour that was national news but done by local people. Yeah,
0: and I think that, that that's what you're keying on to, right, is I think you're, is that is the uh the frontier of the nationalization and the homogenization. Because the voice you've seen at NPR, NPRI have played is this notion of delocalization, right? And it's it's not a it's not an evil plot, right? It's just it, it, you can see the same trends in, in lots of broadcasting, where they could sell a station, a program that had national popularity, often for a cost lower than what it would cost for them to produce it themselves. And then some of the stations went through have gone through identity crises, right, where they where they had their own local news program. But so much of it was still rip and read for all intents and purposes. They were working off of news wires and whatever, um, and and they didn't know quite what to do. And that's why, again, I think in a lot of ways, Chicago Public Radio is one of the leaders is not just because I live here and that they've actually started more new local programs this year, but they're all really intensely local. Then they work really hard. It's not that we won't cover national stories, but we're going to cover them with local guests. We're going to cover them with local angles, and we'll cover things that are expressly Chicago, recognizing that they need to, they need to demonstrate to their listeners that there's a reason why you would listen to WBEZ in Chicago above and beyond the fact that we have all things considered and and the other programs that, that, that you've come to love.
1: Do you think that's somewhat uh the influence of something like Vocalo, or do you think
0: No, I don't think it's the influence of Vocalo. Uh for those who don't know, Vocalo is a uh is uh one of the stations in the Chicago uh public radio empire that um used to be just a, a repeater over in Indiana and then they uh a number of years ago decided to turn it into its own station An initial idea was it'll be programmed by uh, the listeners for all intents and purposes that people would upload MP3s and they get programmed in a rotation. Or even
1: just call in a number. For
0: yeah. A while, just call yeah. in a number. Mm-hmm. And that I, I think is a great idea. The problem is, is it's difficult to actually pull off and to make it something which is going to garner a large listenership because it's going to be by its very nature, kind of chaotic and inconsistent. And people who like chaotic and inconsistent, like me like it, but I don't, that's not a huge listener base and it was done not, very openly so a lot of people who were donors and and such to chicago agree were pissed off when they found out about it
1: see but i see i i guess i don't understand that that to me listening to npr all day does seem chaotic and
0: Except it's chaotic Underrated. in hour segments.
1: Right, but I, so I mean, I, if you're not. Rather
0: really than seven minute segments.
1: If you're not really listening, like, what's. The well,
0: but you know what you're getting. I mean, you do. If you're listening, all things considered, you know, generally speaking, what you're going to get. You're, you're, the formula is familiar and, and, and not so different from uh 2020 for that matter if you watch television or rush limbaugh right it's very different than rush limbaugh
1: but it's not i mean you know what you're getting right
0: i mean yeah but i mean just even that the formula being more specific to the program it's a formula which is the magazine format program is it's it's well trod everyone understands it and gets it um so i don't think it's you don't know what you're getting you know in the same way that if you tune into an hour of talk of the nation you know it's going to be mostly a Uh, a couple of segments that are call-in talk interview and you know generally what you're going to get in that right so it's you know sure it's one hour maybe a little different from the next but it's all no more different than uh tuning into wls and getting rush limbaugh for one hour and getting the local drive time program for an hour i mean you're gonna row and rope or something like that um so i don't think it's so chaotic but then you know vocalo sort of has changed into being kind of a uh Sort of youth, sort of minority formatted uh, program, you know, station. Um, It has a very poor signal area, but it's carried on one of the HD2 channels for all those people who have HD radios. All 12 of you uh, who have HD radios. Um, And it's online, of course. Um, And and I do think that they're starting to look at that as a bit more of the woodshed of places they can try out programming. Now they have their own morning program, which is being shared over to uh, Loyola Station. As well, um, strangely enough, Loyola's College Station, Loyola University of Chicago. Um, that's got, you know, and it's a bit more of a formula morning show is talk, although public radio ish rather than Bob and Tom ish.
1: I, I visited them a couple of years ago, and I guess their opinion was sort of like listen to it online. That, I mean, that was yeah, pretty much all you they can't get me. it yeah. to
0: too many places in the city because yeah. the transmitters in Indiana. Um and I I don't know that that's, it's having an influence. I mean, I think they're looking as a place to woodshed ideas. But no, I think that what what they know at Chicago Public Media is that if they identify themselves as very Chicago and they provide programming that's consistent with that, they're giving their listeners a reason to stay tuned in to them, whether it's on the radio or online to the live stream or to – and then they're podcasting most of the programs now. Right. One way or another, and that they can build that loyalty, because otherwise they do know very seriously you can get all the other programs somewhere else. We have to give you a reason to listen to it So do you
1: think it's sort of generational, like... Terry Gross, you would not know where she is from. Like you would. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, unless she, there's something very. Well, specific.
0: except they say it every time.
1: Right, but I'm saying like there's nothing inherent to her show that's that's
0: Philadelphia, yeah, right. right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Right or um
0: right and I but I think these Chicago Public Radio shows are not being groomed for distribution.
1: Right, right, but I I think that there was an era when you really wanted to be distributed. That was like the goal, right? Well,
0: I mean, maybe. I mean, I think that every. <sighs> I think that there there is a notion of if we can make a program that will be distributed, then that's that's money we can use to help, you know, generally feather the nest. Um, We don't hope to make a program that can be distributed out of everything so much as that. I think at this point in time, uh, a station which has a strategy, which is, knows what it's doing, which which not all of them do, all right? A lot of them are very reactionary and just doing everything they can to stay on the air. But the ones who have a strategy and are thinking about the future, um, beyond just keeping themselves on the air, are looking at it and saying, okay, what do we do that's unique to our place and our listeners, and what do we do? that is potentially something which has a greater cultural significance and we can distribute. And you try and strike that balance between them because you, what you don't want to have happen is that your, your station is basically nothing but syndicated programming with maybe a local announcer. That's what you don't want to have happen.
1: But I mean, I guess, and this is of course, every media uh, has this issue now and I think TV is doing it. Well, I mean, they're dealing with it, but I think the the idea that you have to listen at a certain time is obviously the TV issue is like, mm-hmm. I don't really want to do that. I'll just download it or pay to download it or watch it on Hulu. Um, do you think that NPR is has any sort of strategy for that? Well, I don't
0: think that there is an NPR strategy right. because NPR is just a network which distributes programming.
1: Right. But they could have, have people pay for that
0: yeah, I mean, I guess they could. I mean, I think um, I mean, so I'm, I'm not as much in the public radio world as I once was, so right. I may be saying, you know, I could be talking and they could actually have a strategy, so I'm talking more as an observer at this right. point um, and reading you know the inside publications. Um, what I think is that uh, at NPR, they become much more aware of of brand building, and that they know that they are in the process of building a brand, and the brand is both NPR. The brand is public radio and then the brand is individual programs and that anything you do that increases listenership and increases sort of loyalty to these things is good. Right. And that's why if you listen to podcasts of NPR shows, you'll hear special appeals to the podcast listeners, right? If your podcast listener either donate to your local public radio station or donate directly to WNYC for on the media or whatever, you'll hear that directly. And so they're realizing, okay, you know, there are things we can do. You're hearing more, um, advertising on the podcast that's specific to the podcast and that of course then isn't as restrictive as what can be aired on a radio as underwriting you're hearing more things like that you're seeing more advertising online you're seeing more partnerships online all sorts of uh revenue generating things that are not allowed by uh the non-commercial rules with the fcc but that don't apply to anything that doesn't happen on the radio
1: well, I know uh, Planet Money did a thing. I, they haven't sold their T-shirt yet, but they were coming up with a T-shirt design, and so they did um, a, a, an episode on each aspect of how you make a T-shirt. Like, what country should we make it in? What fabrics do we choose? And and um, and so like they have like ten episodes based on like this T-shirt. And when it comes out, I assume you know you're invested in that T-shirt now because you know like who made it. You heard them on the radio. <laughs>
0: Planet Money is a great example because it's a program that's a web series and it's it is on the air but it is not a it's not a program. It shows up it they do tie-ins with marketplace, they do tie-ins with NPR news, they do tie-ins with This American Life, but the program itself is online. And that was one of their NPR's first forays into an online only sort of program but that would have tie-ins with other stuff. And 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 that's part of that brand building. It's the idea is that we could create this brand that people would be into and but that could have subsidiary effects and create more loyalty to npr and all these other things even if it's not principally an on on the radio uh program i think that really is part of their uh their the revised sort of strategy which local stations have or have not gotten on board with
1: well and this american life will only give you the last week download for free and or if you download you have to buy their iphone app and then mm. you can listen to anything for
0: free. yeah and in and, and part of that i mean it's not merely revenue generating from the standpoint of additional revenue but also Paying someone's got to pay that. for the bandwidth yeah. right <laughs> bandwidth ain't free and the thing about the radio is every additional listener doesn't cost anything more every additional podcast listener ostensibly costs more uh being more popular on the internet costs you more money being more popular on the radio past a certain threshold cost nothing
1: so how do you think that they can justify the idea of having a web series versus not much on the radio i.e., planet money
0: well it is it's on the radio all the time it's just not on the radio as the series itself Mm -hmm. and i think i mean i don't know how they managed to sell it because it was a pretty big deal when they did it um but i think that uh part of the sell probably was well you won't have to make any additional airtime uh trying to get a program launched is very expensive because you've got to get all these affiliate stations on board. And a lot of affiliate stations are going to play it like, well, if so-and-so is not doing, we're not carrying it. Like we're not going to be the first one on this. You know, if you get, if you get the big station in Santa Monica and you get the big station in Oregon or whatever, you get all these guys on it. Sure. I'll take it, but I'm not going to be the first one to take it. And that that's expensive and time consuming. So I think the idea was, can we launch a program without actually launching it? And then we can do tie-ins with established programs like marketplace and, uh, and uh, then all things considered, but this American life has been the other, other show that they've done a lot with. Hmm. And, and so maybe that will be, you know, there'll be a planet money. I mean, I think they've done these like planet money. Um, I may be wrong, but I think they've done these sort of like short series because, you know, they're always, it's easy to get someone to take like six or something and fill in right, some, some like odd morning
1: edition or. or
0: or or take six of something and fill it in at five thirty on friday mo- on saturday mornings or you know places where you're you got some rotating lineup you don't have any commitments to anything and especially if it's something which they provide for free or close to free um there's ways you can do that but yeah i mean i think that the overall strategy is is basically public radio is recognizing that it's public media right that that radio it is primarily an oral medium It's primarily a sonic medium, but that they're playing in multiple platforms and everybody needs to play on those platforms. Um, and you know, in some ways benefits from being not for profit in that, uh, you don't have to, it ha- to be successful, you have to be sustainable rather than profitable. And, and the line between those is, is, is murky of course, but it's not insignificant. I think, um, The big challenge, of course, for your local stations is, and for all of them is, can we get somebody who is a podcast listener to be as generous with their donations as the conventional listener?
1: I mean, well, that's interesting because they're not doing anything I think other podcasts might do to attract money.
0: Right. I mean, I'm not sure what they can do.
1: I mean i think there are podcasts which you know i i mean i think this american life is doing those sorts of mm-hmm. things where-
0: yeah but it, i mean i'm sure that was a difficult decision and i know it's a decision i remember when it when it when it happened and um a lot of people a lot of listeners a lot of geeks were really upset you know they felt like you know this isn't public radio you're making me pay for it. you know basically you're making me pay for what's going on our glass is just uh you know, trying to, trying to double charge us or something. He
1: sold out and moved to New York. People don't. Yeah, exactly. Became right? a TV star.
0: <laughs> Briefly.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I think the show is no longer on the air. It
1: is not. He said that it was too difficult to do both shows.
0: I can imagine.
1: Yeah. It sounds terrible.
0: And I'm sure the radio show has more impact. Than, yeah.
1: yeah. And they do, do like events. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. think, I think they're following the podcast model more than any other sort of Show because why well,
0: I, I think they led the podcast. I think they I, I think I they, they led it. I don't think they're following it. I think they they because they've been doing the live This is American Life shows. But if you really want to say who led it, it'd be Garrison Keillor who's been doing it's live true. mobile Prairie Home Companion shows for a long time
1: well and wait wait don't tell me as yeah. always you know
0: your home companion has been doing it but for but i long think time.
1: their live shows are a little different i think uh this american life i think it's like simulcast and mm-hmm. different well yeah he's yeah. taking
0: it to the idea that it's a theater show and that right. you would want right, to like watch it in another theater simulcast right i mean definitely taking it up another notch um again uh, finding other sources of revenue being able to support the program make it do do better but uh you know as well <laughs> keep it going uh I think they are pioneering a lot of a lot of different models. And you see this even with, um, I don't know if you ever listened to Sound Opinions, mm-hmm. which is produced out of uh, WBEZ. Strangely enough, a show that started on commercial radio. Yeah, that's true. On WXRT, got canceled on WXRT, which is a, the sort of classic slash progressive rock station in Chicago, and then got picked up by uh, Chicago Public Radio and then solely became syndicated um, afterwards. And they do events too, but they mostly do events... Here in Chicago, they haven't and they haven't yet gone to do things which uh, seem to tour or, or simulcast. Um, they don't have nearly the number of list, uh, stations signed up as uh, This American Life, but it's substantial. And I think maybe they did something in South by Southwest, but I could be making that up.
1: Well, and also their fans are probably not people who leave the house much. <laughs> I'm just going to guess.
0: <laughs> For the people who don't know, Sound Opinions is the only rock and roll radio talk show is what they call themselves. And it's two Chicago music critics who uh, jawbone about albums and do interviews with tour- with artists who tour through town. Leans towards indie rock, but isn't exclusively. And then have regular segments like uh, album dissections. And- yeah,
1: they kind of out hip people. I they, think
0: they a little bit. Yeah, I can't always. There's certain segments I can't listen to, like when they do the rock doctors. Where people are supposed to call in and say, I need some new music, man, or my... Oh, yeah, it's, or it's, my, like, it's
1: like the click and clack yeah, of, of audio. My, my
0: girlfriend uh, listens to nothing but, you know, old Britney Spears. Uh, can you get her something else she like? I can't I listened to, to an
1: actually really excellent one of those where someone said... Someone called in and said, you know, I listen only to these terrible, terrible... Well, I mean, they didn't think they were mm-hmm. terrible, but they were like, mm-hmm. I listen only to the Dave Matthews Band and Fish... And my my girlfriend says, I am over 30 and I should stop listening to bands <laughs> and stop being one. a dumbass stoner. So what should I listen to? And they were like, minus the bear. <laughs> that's what you should listen to. Like they came up with like five. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually helpful to the community, I suppose, I think. But um, yeah, or well, and I think th- I guess that that show does like sort of reek of high fidelity to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not too snooty because they also, I mean, they, they, they piss on, like, say, Springsteen and some uh, great rock laureates. And they also, uh, you know, try to cover some pop music and, and music that other people Yeah, I, the on. last,
1: I, a couple weekends ago, I listened to the one that was about how much they love disco mm-hmm. and how they've always loved it. And anyone who doesn't love disco is just being a snooty person. And you're like, but you're being a snooty person by listening, you yeah. <laughs> so. know.
0: Well, yeah, there's no winning.
1: It's sort of self-referential.
0: There's no winning. It's, it's a program I listen to frequently. I yeah. don't die for it. Right. Uh, but produced here in, uh, in Chicago.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's
0: interesting. I mean, public radio is now more popular than ever has been before. Um, and I think that that's instructive because it's not necessarily true of public television. In that, you know, one of the things that public radio did well in the, uh, in the 2000s is exactly what commercial radio did shitty is that they, in the face of a potentially declining audience, they did their darndest to invest in programming and to embrace the internet. (laughs) And commercial radio did almost the polar opposite. They did everything to treat stations like real estate uh, and to put the the cheapest, shittiest thing they could on the stations in order to drive down the cost of operation, therefore at least driving up uh, in the short term uh, operational profits Um, homogenizing, nationalizing, but not for the purpose of building brands, but for the purpose of not having to pay many people to program stations, drove away audience, and of course at the same time sort of said F you to the internet. And Public Radio did sort of the exact opposite and as a result, you know, I think part of Public Radio's success is due to the, uh, is is on the backs of commercial radio's failure.
1: Well, and I think they were particularly set up for it because I think chunking content into smaller and smaller bits is kind of What people want to pay for now And uh, And that's luck Right it's total luck but I mean they made it Far more I mean there was a period when you could not, if someone said to you, oh, I th- heard this thing on NPR today about this book, and they sort of vaguely described it to you, and you went to your local NPR station, you could not find that. Oh, no. And if you went to regular NPR, you couldn't find it, because you have no idea where that is right. coming yeah. from. So, I mean, I think they did a really excellent job of doing that, whereas, like, a radio station is like, it's all programming all day. Here's our live feed. Yeah. But there's no, like... You can't listen to one episode of something. yeah.
0: And they embraced it. I mean, and they embraced it ahead of most of radio. But, you know, I'm a public radio listener. I'm a fan of public radio. I think it's an important service. I also think it's important that uh, it continue to serve uh, the communities where the stations are. As a local. Yeah, I think a local is still really important. Kind of like uh,
1: Canadian broadcasting requires that... Some percentage of their television be Canadian produced. Or radio.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Canadian content requirements. I mean, I'm uh, generally not in favor of a, of a content requirement. I think that rather it can, you know, pressure from listeners and, and uh, the public at large ought to be sufficient for stations to can need to do that, which doesn't mean not carrying all things considered, it means also trying to provide programs which go in depth and try and, and cover news that happens in your own backyard and do so with the same, at least a similar degree of investigative depth that you get uh, through NPR. And and you know, NPR is not perfect. There's a lot of, you know, it, it's easy to kind of slip into the sort of liberal consensus, so to speak, and thinking that because NPR has a great deal of of coverage in depth that somehow uh, it is covering what's important, but a lot still slips between it's still very mainstream as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, they actually, uh, speaking of planet money earlier, they did a, um, an economic analysis of um, whether or not uh, different news stations are more conservative or Mm -hmm. liberal and actually uh, NPR skewed more conservative than regular in news reporting yep. than regular uh, news reporting mm-hmm. um, it, it, than, you know, CNN than any of that. Sort yeah. Of and
0: I too. do think it's just part of the it's partly Washington consensus. It's just who's there. And and then partially, I think it's also um, it is protective. It's Super they're sensitive, so yeah. sensitive to, to the liberal bias argument, right? To the extent to which you can talk to somebody who is a Fox News viewer who's going to basically say, "Oh, yeah. I don't listen to NPR. I not to listen to that communist liberal socialist claptrap," right? Folks who never listened really, but just sort of can say out of hand, "Well, of course it is," right? And they're very and they are very very sensitive to that argument. I think we're uh, I think we've uh, run run this car talk into the ground. Forgetting that uh, you know Carl Castle was the uh, long-forgotten uh, third Tappet brother, Clunk.
1: Can we can we have some sort of contest where if someone wins, they um they we record their their answering machine message.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Would you have to memorize? It's pretty clever. Uh, it's no, it's totally great. I want to say that the uh, that uh, I think the final puzzler.
1: Puzzler.
0: The final puzzler is gonna uh gonna reveal the location of a seventy-two tornado where in the uh in the trunk is uh is locked uh dead body of a uh, public radio program director. Awesome. The last the last holdout for the national dominance of car talk. They had some friends you know, <laughs> take care of that. To exactly. Reveal that right before they uh They relocate to a country with no extradition agreement with the United States. That's what I think is going to happen with uh, card Talk. Click and clack. They're not going to go into the uh, clink. But this is a very serious show.
1: It was super serious.
0: So the next one better, uh, well, to alternate them.
1: Yeah, not serious
0: yeah because i'm a radio geek i can't help it with this nbr nonsense what
1: is uh kip winger's opinion about the radio
0: <laughs> i have no idea i haven't Holy shit! i have no good ki- i know i was racking my head and i i couldn't come up I, you're right because i blew blew too big of a wad I know. in podcast number two i, I laid know. way too much kip winger trivia out there he's one ruggedly handsome dude though
1: he is pretty handsome I was shocked.
0: Have you seen? He's still pretty handsome. I
1: know I haven't seen it. Yeah. We'll, well,
0: maybe we'll we'll mock something up, and uh, with uh, Kit Winger listening NPR. Yeah. Get him a uh, get him a wait wait don't tell me T-shirt.
1: Yeah.
0: Or no, a tote bag.
1: A tote bag.
0: <laughs> All right. Pretty soon we're gonna have to get the listeners to start sending us their Photoshop creations. I only have so much time to to take around with, with that. the Photoshop.
1: Please send us your Photoshop creations. Uh, where, where
0: should they send that to, Jenny?
1: Uh, JPSellout at gmail.com.
0: We should publish that.
1: Should publish it that.
0: A, I got a lot of shit to publish. All right, I got work to do. Yeah, you do. All right. Thank you, Jenny.
1: Thank you, Paul.